Proverbs 18 and verse number 9. Everybody there? All right. He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. In this verse, we're introduced to two brothers, sloth and waste. The one fellow won't work, and the other is wasteful. But regardless of how you look at it, both of them are guilty of squandering their assets. One refused to make, uh, make the gains that he should, and the other wastes the goods that he has. But, but notice that both of them here are, are condemned. He speaks critically of both of them. Neither one of them is in, in good company. And I think there's a good reminder in that for us, your sin is not less serious just because it's different. I think we all tend to maybe put more emphasis on certain sins than we do others. And, uh, you know, we just kind of categorize them and we've, we've, you know, got these great big ones and the medium size and the small ones. And, but we tend to put all of ours in that small category. And it's just so amazing how we do that. We condone in ourselves what we condemn in other people. So both of these, uh, the man that won't work and the man that is wasteful, both of them are wrong. You, you, you know, another thing about this is when we talk about this, this is one of those things, maybe I should say these are some of those things, if I speak of both of the people that are mentioned here, that seldom get a lot of attention. We, we just don't give a lot of thought, for example, to people being wasteful. We've, uh, here in America, lived so long with an abundance of things, you know, we just, we take it for granted that we're always going to have enough. And uh, it's to our shame that if we're honest, we have to admit that we are the biggest wasters on the on the face of the earth. It, it doesn't seem to bother us a bit to waste things, uh, things that God has graciously provided for us. When you think about those that, uh, such as my, my parents, those that went through the Great Depression, those that uh, had to do without, those that, you know, were just in, in great need, a lot of times it, it just, you know, the manner of life they had to live. But when they came out of it, they came out of it with a deeper appreciation for, for the things they had, and they were far less wasteful than people had been before. I, I can remember as a boy, my, my mom didn't waste anything. If, if sis and I didn't eat what was on our plate, two, one or two things would happen. Either mom was going to eat it, or she's going to put it in the icebox, and we was going to eat it the next day. Because uh, we just didn't waste anything like that. But we live in a day and age where, you know, we throw out more good stuff than what a lot of people have to survive on. And, uh, and, and every little bit counts. And that's the way it was back in the biblical times. It, it should be that way today. Several years ago, I read an article. It was actually from... Uh, 
I think it was called Management Methods Magazine, something like that. And by the way, I don't, I don't read the such publications, but I, I did read this article that came from there, and it was about an executive there, and he uh, inadvertently, during the course of the day, he had spilled a waste paper basket, and he got to looking at all of the stuff in the waste paper basket, and uh, there was an unused memo pad, a perfectly good inner office envelope, many paper clips, a scarcely used pencil, and some rubber bands. And so he calculated that that was worth about six cents. But he got to thinking that, uh, you know, by the way, our company has 2,500 waste baskets. So he figured out that amounts to about $150 wasted every day. And that would be an annual loss of $36,000. That would represent the profit gained on an order of $900,000. And so here, here, here we see six cents worth of stuff, you know, uh, being thrown out. And, and you know, I, probably all of us are thinking, yeah, but, you know, you can carry this to an extreme. Let me tell you, we have carried it to an extreme. Well, why is it we get worried about carrying it to an extreme when we want to save six cents worth of stuff out of each wastebasket and save that money. People get all up in the air about that, but they don't get at all excited about the fact of all of the stuff that we actually waste and people literally starving to death and doing without. And here in America, we just act like there's an endless supply. So the point of this proverb is really simple, but it's very serious, and that we should waste neither our time nor our substance. We need to be willing to work and to use our time to be productive. And not only that, we, we need to be careful that we do not waste what God has given us. Because, by the way, we have to answer to God as the stewards of the Lord for everything that we have. And just because we've got a lot doesn't mean that gives us a license to waste it. And so this is a good practical lesson, especially for those living in America. We need, to, uh, we need to get the message. Verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. The name of the Lord. Boy, we could spend 30 minutes or an hour just talking about the name of the Lord, but we can sum it all up by saying that that phrase speaks about his divine attributes. The name of the Lord, that constitutes everything that the Lord is. When, whenever you hear a certain person's name, for example, automatically there are certain things that come to your mind. When we think about the name of the Lord, automatically we think about his attributes, right? That God is holy. God is a God of love. That God has all power. God has all wisdom. God, uh, God is omnipresent. He's right here in the room with us. And we think about all of those attributes. And so it says the name of the Lord. Uh, we think about uh, writing a check. And we take that piece of paper that's really not worth anything whatsoever. And yet you sign your name on that worthless piece of paper and take it down to the bank 
and it opens up all of the resources that are there in your name. And so whenever we're talking about the name of the Lord, please understand that this is more than just, you know, a name per se. This implies all that he is. And notice that he is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. And so this is a picture of a, a, of a, a fortress. It's a place that people can go in a time of danger to take refuge. In those days, in fact, I preached about this just a few weeks ago, you know, that God is our fortress. He is our hiding place and uh, a refuge from the things that threaten us. And by the way, we live in a dangerous world. We live under threat every single day of our life. And we have an enemy that goes about as a roaring lion seeking to devour us. We're under the threat of the enemy. We're in danger. And, uh, th and the sad thing about it is we're too weak. We're too weak to defeat our strong enemies, too weak to resist temptation, too weak to overcome our weaknesses. But thank God we have one that we can run to who is, is a strong tower, a refuge in our time of need. And uh, notice he says the righteous. Now this he's emphatic about this. I want you to notice the righteous runneth into it and is safe. I don't think he's telling us what we ought to do. I think he's telling us what we do. The righteous, those that are righteous, they understand what they have in God and they understand that they are not sufficient in and of themselves. And so whenever, you know, the enemy comes out against us, whenever trials become heavy on our shoulders and a burden that we can't bear. We know that we can go to the Lord and he's able to sustain us and defeat the enemy and provide whatever our need is. I love the way Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where he says, our sufficiency is of God. Uh, you know, aren't, aren't you glad that your sufficiency doesn't depend on, uh, on self or, or somebody else? Our sufficiency is of God. And it makes no difference what area of your life you're talking about. Uh, the, he, he and he alone is the one that is sufficient to meet all of our needs. Don't forget who you are and what you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Verse number 11, the rich man's wealth is his strong city and is a high wall uh, in his own conceit. Now, I want you to notice the contrast. Unlike the righteous person who depends on the name of the Lord, he's telling us about those rich people that depend on their wealth. And quite naturally, that would not include all rich people. But, but nevertheless, that is a characteristic or a tendency of most rich people to depend upon their wealth for protection during a time of need. So instead of, instead of looking at God as their sufficiency, they think to themselves, you know, with all of my resources, you know, I'm able to take care of myself. 
I can get the very best doctors in the land. I can, I can get the best lawyers. I, I can get the best of everything. So I don't have anything to worry about, which is a foolish assumption. And the Bible warns us about that over and over again. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, yeah, but that verse is talking about rich people. That doesn't, that doesn't include me. Really? Really? Notice this is not all spoken in the context of Americans. When he speaks about a rich man, rich person, that would include those of us that live in America. You know, by the standard of the world, you might say, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just of average wealth compared to other Americans, but compared to the rest of the world, and don't you think that's the only fair way to do this? When you compare yourself to the rest of the world, let me tell you, the poorest person here is exceedingly rich indeed. And we've got to be careful that we don't trust in our riches rather than the true and the living God. Verse number 12, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty and before honor is humility. Now, both of these things were mentioned previously We've, over in chapter 16 and verse 18 and chapter 15 and verse 33. He mentions both of them. But here again, as, as is common in the book of Proverbs, they're repeated and, and he repeats them in order to emphasize their importance because God knows better than anybody else that we just don't always get the message, do we? So many times we hear it over and over and over. And, you know, there, there might be some time a preacher will get up and preach something that he preached maybe a, a few months before. Or he might use a different text. He might use some different illustrations. But it's basically the same message. And somebody thinks, you know, boy, I've heard all of that before. I wish he'd preach something different. Well, you know, maybe you got the message and maybe you're living according to the message, but there are folks that don't get the message and there's certain things we need to hear over and over again, and this is one of them. Notice, he just got through speaking about the conceit of rich people who depend upon their riches, but now he's speaking about the conceit of people that are prideful and the dangerous situation therein. Let me tell you, there's no sin so dangerous as pride. And I think I can safely say there's nothing more common and foolish than pride. We don't have anything to be proud of. I mean, zilch, zero. Nothing whatsoever to be proud of. And yet so many people are filled with pride and... Uh, and believe that they can make it quite well without God. And he's warning us here, that's the attitude that leads to destruction. We don't need the Lord. We can get along without him. We can solve our own problems. And so it's dangerous, and yet here's the, the silly, crazy thing about it. Some people look at it as, as though it were a virtue instead of a vice. They really do. 
You know, I know it's one thing. I, I know what you mean whenever we say, I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free and so forth. We know what we mean by, by that. Or, you know, we look at one of our children and we tell, tell maybe our child, you know, I am so proud of you. And we, we understand what we mean by that. But there's a big difference in that, in commending someone a big difference in that and being prideful whenever we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Remember he told us only by pride comes contention. And you think about all of the contention that is in the world. And we could get rid of all of it were it not for pride. But notice on the other side of the coin here, he speaks about the humility. And uh, he tells us that humility brings honor. I can remember preaching the message years ago entitled, The Way Up is Down. The Way Up is Down. God exalts those who are humble in their heart. You know, whenever we humble ourselves before the Lord, that God's going to honor us. And the reason this is so important is because it shows us taking our place in submission before the Lord. The, 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 Jesus, of course, was the best example of that of anyone. And one of my favorite sections uh, of scriptures in Philippians chapter number 2. And I, I want to read part of this. And the reason I'm doing so is because it's not just talking about Christ being uh, an example of humility. It's talking about our responsibility to be like him. And he says in Philippians chapter number 2, let me see what verse we want to start with. Verse number 3, he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. We don't usually do very good at that, do we? Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. There is the perfect example. Notice he said, let this mind be in you which was in Christ. Think about that. In other words, he says, I want you to think as Christ did. I want you to think of yourself in the same way. And, and although he was God, what did he do? He humbled himself and became obedient to the death of the cross. Although he was Lord, he became a servant to all. And, and so we have the perfect example of what he's talking about in regards to humility. And when we humble ourselves before the Lord, the Lord says, I will lift you up. And so you say, well, I, I just, you know, I... 
I, I, I want to I get ahead in this world. I want to be a success in this world. Well, let me tell you, the only one that can make you what you ought to be is God, and he is not going to do it if you think more highly of yourself than you ought to. It's whenever we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord that he lifts us up. Verse number 13 He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. I I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but, uh, and this is true throughout the Bible, how that God makes a big deal out of things that, that, you know, that we just kind of slough off, things that we don't think a lot of. And notice he's talking about those that answer a matter before he heareth it. And and, and some people don't think twice about interrupting other people and injecting their own views. In fact, you see it all the time. Even whenever you're talking to someone and you can tell, you can tell they're not listening to anything you're saying. They're thinking about what they're going to say next. And you give them just, I mean, the slightest little gap in there, you know, and boy, boom, it's right back to them voicing their opinion and expressing their feelings. Uh, You know, they're kind of like Job's friends, those guys that assumed that they had all of the answers when they didn't. Now, the problem with this is not just the problem of being rude, we ought to see that as a problem, by the way. You know, we, we, we ought to, you know, let the other person speak before we start speaking and so forth, rather than being rude. But it's dangerous. And it's dangerous because we form conclusions before we get all of the facts. I, I don't, it probably never happened to nobody but me, but I, I, can, I can tell you there have been times that uh, Bev and I have, been having the conversation about something, and I would reply before she had finished. Now, of course, now it's never happened the other way. I want to be clear about that. <laughs> but I've replied before she was finished, you know, and, and, and then she said, but I wasn't finished. Let me, let me finish what I was going to say. And, and you, you know, I had hung myself because here I am making a derogatory remark, you know, a critical statement, and then I have to say, well, I, I, I thought you meant, or I thought you were going to say, you know, a, a lot of us assassinate ourselves with what one fellow called a suicide. A suicide. They ought to put that in the dictionary. We just assume. And that's what happens whenever, whenever, whenever we don't listen as we should. And so he that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it's folly and shame unto him. It's rude and it's dangerous. Now verse number 14, the spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity. Boy, let me tell you, we need that, don't we? Because we live in a world that is difficult And he said, the spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit, who can bear? You know, I hope you're not in a great big hurry to leave because I, I, you know, I I think it would be an injustice if we just rushed through this as important as it is. Sooner or later, 
We all face difficulties. I don't care how smart, how godly you are, how dedicated you are to the Lord, you are not exempt from difficulties in life. You're not going to escape them. The question is, will you be able to endure them? In other words, how will you face them? You, you, can't, you can't get rid of them. There's going to be difficulties and there are a lot of people that are literally crushed beneath the load. And, 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 and on the other hand, you've got people that seem to be able to bear up under almost anything. And you look at them and you're just amazed because they have just gone through this horrible tragedy, this difficult time. And they've still got a smile on their face and a spring in their step and joy in their heart and, and, and a sweet spirit with everyone. And you wonder, how do they do that? Well, the first part of this proverb gives us the answer. It says, the spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity. And this is, this is an amazing statement because it's telling us that a right spirit will get us through just about anything. And we find a lot of examples of that in the Bible. I think about Joseph, for example, and uh, David and Daniel, all of those have a story to tell about in spite of their difficulties, they maintained a sweet spirit and God blessed them as a result of that. And then, of course, there's the case of Paul who was persecuted. He was imprisoned, uh, beaten, and in spite of all of those difficulties, he said, I take pleasure in infirmities. Think about that. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. How, listen, how amazing is that? Because if we're ever going to get bent out of shape and complain and bellyache and moan about things, it's when we're going through stuff like that. And Paul says, I take pleasure in all of that. And let me tell you, this was not just a New Testament thing or an Old Testament thing. This is something that can be seen throughout history. People who was able to endure the most difficult situations because of the fact that they had a right spirit about them. I think about Fanny Crosby who was blind and yet even being blind, she composed over 80,000 hymns and poems. When she was eight years old, I... And, and, I wasn't around back then, but when she was eight, she, she wrote this, and I jotted it down in my Bible, and I've had it there for years. She said, Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Wow, this is an eight-year-old kid. That's amazing. I think about John Bunyan who spent 12 years in the Bedford jail rather than compromise. And his dear wife Mary and their little blind daughter was at home and he, listen, he could have compromised and got out of jail at any time and he spent those 12 years in the Bedford jail rather than to compromise his convictions on what the Word of God teaches. How do you do that? Well, the examples go on and on and on. People that were sick 
and weak and troubled, and they can go anything whenever they have a right spirit. But now notice, he says a wounded spirit. Now that's a different story. A wounded spirit, who can bear that? A wounded spirit, the person that is in that condition will be overwhelmed regardless of all of the good things they possess. I mean, listen, that can cripple the strongest body. It can weaken the most brilliant mind and rob the richest person. It plays havoc with our life to have a wounded spirit. And you and I both know people like that. They've been wounded in some way, and it might go back for years and years, and something happened in their life, and they're still bitter about that. And that wounded spirit has a tremendous effect on, their, on, on the health of their body and the state of their mind and their emotions and everything. For example, Proverbs said, A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. I, I, I mean, whenever a person has a broken spirit, it affects us physically in every other way. And so the whole point of this is that our strength comes from our inner person. Uh, we, we, we think about sometimes that uh, somebody being really strong and they set their jaw, you know, and scotch their feet and they've just got the determination of a bulldog and they're going to just, you know, bully their way through it. Let me tell you, there's some stuff you can't bully your way through. There's some stuff that will so overwhelm you, and the only thing that will sustain you is that inner person. And remember, it's that inner person, that inner part of you, the spirit part of man, that's the seed of God consciousness. That's where our strength is. We cannot neglect the inner man and expect to be able to conquer the difficulties that, that we encounter. And so a, 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 a broken spirit, hey, not much you can do with a person like that. But the person who has a right spirit about them is someone that is able to endure just about anything. Well, one more verse tonight, and we'll wrap it up in verse 15. The heart of the prudent getteth knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeketh knowledge. The wise person, in other words, realizes he doesn't know it all. I mean, if he thinks he knows it all, you know, he's, he's not going to have any, any concern about learning more. But the wise person realizes that knowledge is like a treasure. And, of course, the Bible speaks a lot about knowledge and wisdom and necessarily so, because they go together because wisdom is the ability to use our knowledge rightly. And so we need both, not just the knowledge to know, know what to do. We need the wisdom to know how to do it. And, and the prudent man, this, that's the wise man, realizes the value of knowledge, and consequently it's something that he seeks after you know it's a I think a terrible shame to see people that later on in their life they uh, get to the place that well you know they they start thinking well you know more than likely I don't have more than eight or ten years left 
I feel like I might not have another year left. In other words, we know we're getting down in the twilight of our life. We, we don't have near as much time as we used to. And, and, and I've seen it happen over and over and over that people would lose that sense of urgency to read and to study the Bible. You know, like it's time that I shift my focus to other things. All of my life, you know, I've been studying the Bible. I've been trying to learn as much as I can. And, uh, and then they get down into those latter years of their life and they begin to be lax. And let me tell you, it always has a negative effect when you do that. I don't know about you, but I plan on eating till the day that I die. Now, I might get sick and lose my appetite, but only because something's not normal. Now, I'm saying that for a reason, because whether you're 8 or 80, when you get to the place that you lose your appetite for this blessed old book, you lose your appetite for the Word of God, then that's not normal, folks. You see, this is not just a book about knowledge. This is a book wherein God is conveying the greatness of His love toward us. I suppose, I don't, I guess kids nowadays still write, well, now they text, I forgot. When I was growing up, you know, we'd write love letters, but uh, I can guarantee you Bev never, never ever wrote anything by way of, of a note that I didn't read. I never just took it and put it in my pocket and said, well, you know, I'll, 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 I'll read that someday. You know, if I'm ever, you know, got the blues and don't feel good, I'll, I'll read that and it'll make me feel better. Man, I, I dropped everything I was doing to read that. I wanted to hear what she had to say. Let me tell you, and I'm not exaggerating, I have felt exactly the same way about the Word of God since the day that I got saved. I don't study the Bible just because I'm a preacher. Now, I better, but that's not the reason I study the Bible. I study the Bible because the Spirit of God put a hunger in my heart. I, let me tell you, I can't survive without it. I need not only the knowledge that it gives, but I need the inspiration that it provides. And so do you, by the way. So do you. Don't ever get to where you, you feel that knowledge is just not worth pursuing. Uh, you know, keep learning right up to the very end. I, I've heard people say, well... You know, it's really good for the body and the brain to always be learning something new. And I've known people that went back and took some night courses in college. I've known people that studied a foreign language, for example. And, and all of that is fine. I mean, I don't have anything against that. But I tell you, there's not anything better than spending your time studying the Word of God. That'll benefit you more than absolutely anything else you can do. And, uh, and I, I, hope, I hope you won't waste that opportunity. Well, any final word before we leave? Any, anything that we forgot about or announcement we need to make? I, I, I almost feel like I need to apologize because I, 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 hope, I, did, I hope I'm not coming across as draggy as I feel I uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I just, 
well, thank you, thank you. Well, I, uh, well, I, I appreciate you. I, I, I've often said, and I mean it with all of my heart. I'm not just saying that. I wish every pastor had the privilege of pastoring a church like this one. Uh, God has been so so good to me and to, and to all of us. And I love you, folks. All right, let's stand.